If everyone would turn in their Bibles with me to Philippians, the second chapter of Philippians, we will be reading verses 5 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which also was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not count it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. Therefore God has also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Merciful God, we do thank you that you have given us your word. You have given us the word of your revelation that we might know you, and you have given us the word, your son, on our behalf. May we cling to him today as we hear your word proclaimed. May it strengthen our hearts of faith in him. We pray this all in his precious name. Everyone said? Amen. So as a child... um, Christmas was my favorite day of the year. Sorry, Brandon, if there's a little bit of repetition from our lunchtime talk. But I would guess that uh, that was the case for many of you, if not still your favorite day of the year. How many of you that's the case? Either as a child or even, uh, even till today. Christmas is the best day of the year. I remember as a child at the end of every Christmas day thinking to myself, Oh, it's only one more year till it comes again. Uh, my family had a quite a strange, well, I don't know. I don't meet many people who quite had the uh, Christmas tradition of my family, which is uh, we gathered with my cousins, only one family of cousins, and my grandparents and my own family, and we all tediously opened one present at a time, and it took several hours. And yet it was done without any complaint. And, and Christmas was this day of overabundance of gifts and giving. Uh, and I'm guessing that whether or not your experience of Christmas growing up or today was the same as mine growing up, I know that for many it's a day of delighting in good food. It's a day to delight in gifts and giving of gifts and seeing the smiles on the faces of ones we love. And it's a day of delighting in the joy of being with family and and enjoying good food together. And yet, as an adult, my feelings toward the day are a bit more conflicted. The problem is not that with any one of those things, the gifts, the food, the smiles, the family, the friends. These are all good things to delight in. They're all good gifts from God to, to, to whom belongs all the glory. And in truth, the only way we really can enjoy those things are when we know the one who gives those good gifts. And yet, for many, myself included, there is always a temptation to delight more in the gifts than the giver. There is a temptation 
to make an idol of the day and all the good things that come along with it. And I open with these comments not to be a killjoy, not to make you all say, hey, just like, uh, remember the reason for the season and forget everything else. But I do hope that today, as we look at these words from Scripture, these words from the Apostle Paul, we can remember that the greatest delight in this life is Jesus Christ and what he has given. The text we have before us really is a feast of biblical truth. Not all biblical passages feast in this, can we feast on them the same way. Some biblical passages are the culinary equivalent of kale. But what I think we have in this text in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, is the biblical equivalent of a steak and lobster feast. It is rich, it is full, it is nourishing, and it is delightful. The truths that are contained within it, the things to meditate on, the things that I have had the delight of meditating on this week. So, people of God, feast this afternoon as we consider these words from scripture. So our verses today come from the, uh, Paul's letter to the saints at Philippi. And the saints at Philippi were generally pretty strong Christians. The impression we get is that they, they were faithful, dutiful, that they were f- filled with a love for God. And they didn't have the same kinds of problems some of the other churches Paul had to write to. They weren't dabbling with the kind of works-based heresy of the Galatians. They weren't caught up in the kinds of rampant and outward hedonism and sins that he had to rebuke the Corinthians for. And yet, despite their relative strength as a church, divisions were creeping in. The people were at conflict with one another, arguing with one another, and putting their own needs above the needs of their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And right at the heart of this letter... As Paul is exhorting them and encouraging them, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we see that the message of this text is quite simple. That Christians are called to imitate the humility of Jesus. Christians are called to imitate the humility of Jesus. And while Paul's exhortation is simple, it rests on a whole bunch of really heavy and significant and deep theological truths, all of which I'm going to try to pack into a short sermon this afternoon before we all fall asleep. So in order to understand this claim that we are called to imitate the humility of Christ, we need to understand who Jesus is. That is, we need to understand his two natures. But we also need to understand that in taking on human flesh, what was it that Jesus gave up in his incarnation? Theologians call this his estate of humiliation. And we also have to understand not just what he gave up, but what he gained. Why did he do this? And theologians call this, what, what, what ended, what the, the result of humiliation was him ending in his state of exaltation. So we're going to look at his two nature, natures, his estate of humiliation, and his, the estate of his exaltation. So to begin with, Jesus possessed two natures. That is, he was both fully divine and fully human. 
And if you are a Christian, this is your confession. This is what you believe, and this is what you know that the word of God proclaims. And we see both of these truths, that he was his full divinity and his full humanity in this text before us. So beginning with his full divinity, we read in verse uh, chapter 2, verse 6, that being in the form of God. And before we can look at how this passage teaches us the full divinity of Jesus, we have to realize that there are critics, there are unbelievers, there are those detractors from God in his ways who would love to use this verse to say, see, it says he's in the form of God, not he is God. I'm sure that this is the kind of thinking that uh, Arius would have used back in the day when he was spreading his message that Jesus was not fully God, but that he was a created being. And this is the kind of heresy that has echoed through the ages in various forms, whether it would be the Deists or the Socinians or the liberal Protestants of the early 20th century or the cults of today like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Latter-day Saints. There are those who would say that they believe in God's word and yet claim that Jesus is less than fully God. But fortunately, God has not left us without witness. He has not left us on our own, and he has given us an abundantly clear testimony to the full deity of Jesus. And I'm not going to take you on a tour of the New Testament and all the passages which we could go through, because that would take the entire afternoon. And we're going to stick right here in this one text. And one of the nice things and I, that I would encourage you all to do is for the sake of having conversations with those who doubt or securing your own confidence in the full deity of Jesus. Find a single text which, which clearly testifies to it and master it. This would be one good text to do that with. So a brief survey of how this passage, these verses, Philippians 2, verse 5 through 11, testify to the full divinity of Jesus. So like I said, verse 6 says he's in the form of God. And while someone might want to say, well, that sounds like something less than God. If something is in the form of something, doesn't it indicate it that it's not that thing? Well, one of the commentaries I read said that form here means the true and exact nature of something possessing all the characteristics and qualities of the thing. Therefore, having the form of God is roughly equivalent to having equality with God. Which is then clarified, if that's not enough, if you don't trust the commentary, the very next uh, words out of Paul. So Paul says, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And people, there is no being that has the right to claim equality with God, which the Apostle Paul is implying that Jesus had the right to claim equality with God, but just did not. But no mere created being has that right. So by implication, Jesus had to be divine himself if that was a right that he could claim. Furthermore, we just have to think of the, the, the Bible as a whole. We have to think of the whole witness of Scripture and how that we know overwhelmingly from the Old Testament that there is only one God. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We have passages like Isaiah 45, that overwhelmingly talk about where God himself says, there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. So for there being a, to be a being who had the right to claim equality with God means that he must be God himself. 
But that's not the end of it. I mean, this, there's more in this text. In verse 10, we read that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, there's an allusion here, parallels really, Isaiah 45, 23, which interestingly reads, and God is clearly the reference that to me, every knee should bow, every tongue should take an oath. Compare that to what Paul said here in Philippians, that at the name, not of me, but in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we see Paul here taking the language of the book of Isaiah, a verse that had God's God in that place, and he puts Jesus in that same place as God the Father. showing an equality there with him. Furthermore, this passage ends with the, with, uh, the statement that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I don't know how many of you follow when you're reading the word Lord, the, the, the Lord with the all capital letters versus the Lord with a capital L and then lowercase letters, the all caps uh, referring to the proper name of God the capital L with lowercase letters being more of a title of God. But what we see here is Jesus Christ being claimed Lord and having the name above every other name. And so while this is not the all caps Lord, it is still a divine title because Jesus is not merely a Lord, but he is the Lord over all lords. And that is a title that alone belongs to God. So more could be said, more verses could be turned to. But it is helpful, as I mentioned a minute ago, to have a solid passage that overwhelmingly testifies to the full divinity of Jesus. Others you may want to look up at other times. John 1, 1 through 14, Hebrews chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. There are more verses that we could go to. But people of God know these verses, cling to them, and know that the scripture testifies to Jesus' full divinity. But not just his full deity. Scripture overwhelmingly testifies also to his full humanity. In in this same passage, in verse 7 through 8, we read, Coming in the likeness of of men, and, it says, being found in the appearance as men. Pretty clear statements of his humanity. Yet, like the other passage about being in the form of God, I'm sure that these are the kinds of passages that his detractors love to quote. Something like this. In the likeness of man. doesn't say that he was man. In the appearance as man. Not as a man. They... I think it would be very easy to misread these as saying that Jesus was God-like, but not fully man himself, as the ancient heresies proclaimed. Docetism said that Jesus was more or less a ghost, that his physical humanity was just an illusion. Another one was Apollinarianism, which said, yeah, well, Jesus had a physical body, but the divine nature was more or less phantom-like, possessing it. So it wasn't really that they were united, but that, you know, there was a body here and Jesus kind of directed it and told it what to do. Unless you think to yourself, oh, those are ancient heresies. Why are you even mentioning them? 
These also continue to pop up. Some of you know the name William Lane Craig. He's a well-known apologist. I've benefited from some of the things that he's written. He's incredibly articulate and influential, and yet he has been propagating a view called neo-Apollinarianism. We don't need to get into that, but all I wanted to say is that to let you know that these things are still around. People are still drawn to them. Men uh, men who have uh, claimed the name of Christ and even publicly proclaimed him are still prone to the temptation of wandering into these errors, so we cannot take these truths for granted. But fortunately, I believe that this text before us also clearly testifies to his humanity. Yet the, the way that our passage before us is less directly and exegetical. I'm not going to try to explain how the language of a likeness of man or appearance as a man actually speaks to his uh, full humanity because I think that there's an easier way to prove that this passage testifies to his full humanity, which is the internal logic of what the Apostle Paul is saying in these verses. That being, so he's clearly testified that Jesus is fully God. And he talks about Jesus giving up so much. And yet, if he didn't become fully man, the underlying logic breaks down. Because what did he really give up? If he may remain just fully God and didn't take on a true human nature, how could it truly be said that he gave anything up? And that undercuts the whole message that the Apostle Paul is trying to say because he's saying that Jesus gave so much of himself. He took on a human form, likeness of man. But if he wasn't really human, can it really be said that he gave much up, that he truly experienced the things that he experienced in his human form. So if we look at the logic of what's happening here and what the Apostle Paul is saying, we must necessarily affirm, yes, both his deity and his humanity. And so as we wrap up our thoughts on the two natures of Christ, it's often taught, when when the two natures of Christ are discussed, oftentimes we think of the atonement. And the fact that if he wasn't fully human, he couldn't bear our sins, bear our sins. And if he wasn't fully divine, he couldn't bear our sins. And that is absolutely true. That both are needed for him to make atonement. The Apostle Paul also says that both are needed for the example of Christ. If he wasn't fully God, he didn't really have much to give up. If he wasn't fully man, he didn't really give much up. So this presses us, it challenges us to consider the magnitude of what Christ gave on our behalf. And I'll say this morning, it's tempting to make an application to rebuke us against entitlement and materialism, that we who deserve so little, who deserve nothing in truth, so often uh, have an attitude of an entitlement thinking that we deserve everything. And it is true that that's sin, and so if that's you, repent of that. But I think it's this morning, if we could focus on the relational aspect of that, because that is what the Apostle Paul is doing in this verse, in these verses. And if we could take the fact that it's Christmas, in the Christmas season, 
and that in this time of year, there is much family gathering together. And I think we know that with family, especially extended family, family that we don't see very often, oftentimes this means gathering with people with whom there are broken relationships. See, with people that we don't see very often, it's easy to have a conflict, sweep it under the carpet, and since we don't see them on a regular basis, to just go on and then endure a day or two of seeing them during the Christmas time. And to let that go on year after year after year. Putting on a smile, asking how work is going, giving a hug, but letting the resentment continue, letting the bitterness, letting the strife, letting the division. I'm thinking especially among family that are fellow believers in Christ. So in this situation, what would it look like to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus? Well, it's hard. But I think it means setting aside our pride of what people might think if we would talk, try to talk about the issues that have divided. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. Think this means that setting apart any bitterness to forgive. Have this mind which, in you, which also was in Christ. Setting aside your comfort. It is incredibly awkward and uncomfortable, at least for me. Maybe I'm the only one in here to have these kinds of conversations especially when they've been put off for many, many years. Set aside your own priorities. Oh, I don't have time. Uh, There's too much busyness. I have to cook. I have to do this. I have to do that. People of God, if, if he who deserves everything set aside the glory and comfort that he had and was due for the sake of you, how much more should you be willing to set aside your comfort your pride, your bitterness, your priorities for the sake of others. So as we turn back to our text, just looking at the two natures doesn't cover everything that we need to see in this text here. And I will try to wrap up the two estates quickly. Because we, in coming to this, we have to ask ourselves the question, what did Jesus give up? What did he actually give up in taking on human form? What did, in, in, in the incarnation, what was it that Jesus actually gave up? And very closely related to it, why? What was he gaining? And in that we see the doctrine of his humiliation and his exaltation. Well, I have a bunch of notes here that would take a long time to get through on humiliation, and I'm going to try to distill them on the top of my head. So I want to say that there are two basic errors when it comes to what Jesus gave up. One is that he gave up his deity. That's known as kenosis. And uh, the people who espouse that will appeal to the language of he emptied himself here by the Apostle Paul. Jesus did not give up his divinity when he became a man. That is a false teaching and completely unscriptural. I think something else we might be tempted to think, though, is that merely becoming a human was the sacrifice that he gave. Now, I 
think I maybe thought something similar to this or just hadn't thought it through, but I was talking to a friend about it, and then I read something very similar in Burkhoff. So let me just say what, read what Burkhoff has to say about the Incarnation. Some maintain that the Incarnation is not part of the humiliation of Christ, since he still has his human nature, and yet is no more in a state of humiliation. But we should carefully discriminate here. While the Incarnation is an act of great condescension, so just taking on human form, it was an act of great condescension, it was not necessarily a humiliation that the Son of God assumed a human nature. You track that? Just becoming human in itself was not an act of humiliation. He goes on. But it was an act of... But it was an act of humiliation that he assumed flesh. That is, human nature as it is since the fall. Be very careful. Weakened and subject to suffering and death, though in his case free from the taint of sin. I hope that distinction doesn't seem too trivial, but here's why it's important. Because Jesus keeps his human form for eternity. Right? And if he is keeping that for eternity, the the perfect union of the two natures, we can't call that not good, right? And so it becomes very important that we see that, and I think we see that further in this passage itself from the Apostle Paul, that it wasn't just the human form that he took that was his humiliation, but it was the suffering that went along with it. I have a lot of verses. So let me just pick up where the Philippians passage says, what the, tying this down to the Philippians passage. In, in Philippians 2.7, it says that he was in the likeness of men. And I think we need to read that as the likeness of fallen men. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 helps us with this. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law. Maybe this is the best way to put it, born under the law. That is, he was subject to the law, but not just subject to obeying the law, but subject to to all the consequences that human fallen humans face because of that original sin. Furthermore, uh, the, the, our passage from the Apostle Paul in Philippians says that he took on the form of a bondservant, a slave, that seems to be equivalent to the language of fallen humanity. And lastly, in 2.8, it says that he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And we know that when he went to the cross, it was him bearing the weight of our sin and, and paying its just penalty there. And our own confession says that not only was his conception, his birth, his life, and his death part of his humiliation, but also his burial as well. And so the humiliation of Jesus' incarnation wasn't setting aside his divinity. It wasn't merely taking human form, but it was taking the estate of fallen humanity, but without sin, along with all of its miseries. 
And this is necessary for us to adequately grasp what it means to have the mind of Christ. It is crucial that we know what he gave up. That he gave up his glory. His claim to glory. That he gave up his comfort. That he gave up that is what he was rightly entitled to. But that leaves us with the last question, which is to what end? What is the purpose that he did this for? Was this giving up in itself virtuous? Was this giving up in itself an honor and a glory? Or was was there a greater purpose to which he did this? And the verse that kept resounding through my mind as I was meditating on this this, uh, the last few days and thinking about it, there's other words from the Apostle Paul that say, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus didn't just do this all as a mere example. Jesus didn't humiliate himself and then take on the estate of humility and, and, and suffer for lost humanity Merely just to be an example, but so that he could redeem a people to himself. And when he was restored to the exalted place at the right hand of God, verse 9 says that God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. And that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We see that he's going to be restored to that place of glory. That every knee will bow, whether or not it is someone who professes him as their king and as their God, or whether it is someone who failed to repent and will suffer eternally under the hand of his wrath. Every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, but he came that those who he redeemed would eternally be able to enjoy and delight in fellowship with him. So as we conclude today, I would like us to fix our eyes on Jesus and that he gave more than we can ever imagine. We really can't comprehend what that even means for him to set, have set aside whatever the perfection of the, the glory and the delight of his, of his eternal fellowship with Father and Spirit was. But though we can't fully imagine it, we need to remember that when he gave, he did it for a purpose. He didn't suffer because suffering is virtuous in itself. He didn't humble himself because it was a good thing all alone. He did it because he didn't do it because death is good. Not any of these things are good in and of themselves, but he did each one for a purpose, to redeem a people for himself so that he could return to his estate of glory and live with this people forever. And so, people of God, likewise, when the Apostle Paul calls each and every one of you to have this mind among yourselves, I don't think he's only talking about the sacrifice. I was wrestling with the text this week, and so we have these six verses. The first three are about his humiliation, the last three about his exaltation. And I thought, are only the first three about this mind which we are supposed to have in ourselves? And I think we are supposed to have the whole thing. Because when we give of ourselves for the sake of others, do we do so in hopeful anticipation that when we do so in faith, 
that God will reward those labors and that that will be used for the building up of his people, the building up of his kingdom, and for the blessing of the saints. When you sacrifice real costly things, you give your time, you give your resources, you give of yourself, do you do so in hopeful anticipation that you see a God who will use you mightily as his instrument to bless his church and to bless those around you? To help others to persevere to the end. To be his witness in the world as his people. Just as Jesus, when he gave of himself, it was in a hopeful anticipation that that what he did would not fall flat or be done in vain. So you two people of God, yes, you give of yourselves. But in hopeful anticipation. And in doing so, you can give of yourselves with a true spirit of joy. Giving of yourself with no real hope that it's going to mean anything or to be used for any greater purpose can be disheartening. But we serve a God who uses his people as his means to accomplish his ends. So we give of ourselves. Yes. But we give in hopeful anticipation, having this mind in ourselves And we do this because it is to him that belongs all the glory. Christ is glorified, so the Father is glorified. And we see that he alone receives all glory, honor, and praise. Let us pray. Well, gracious Father, we do thank you for the great gift of your Son. We thank you for the mercy that we have through him, and we thank you that he gave so much. Father, that you gave so much. Father, we can't really fully conceive what that means, but we get a glimpse. And I pray that today we would be humbled, that we would remember the call in our own lives to have this mind among ourselves, and that as we give, as Christ gave, we would do so in hopeful anticipation, that as we do so, that you will use that mightily to bless your people, to establish your kingdom, and to do your work in this world as you use us for your purposes. Father, strengthen us this day. May we rest in Christ and may we delight in him as well. We pray this all in his name. And everyone said,